I asked a mental question. I had to go look it up because it was bugging me. And the actual term TV dinner was phased out in the 1970s in, in favor of just frozen foods. But uh, the TV, the Swanson TV dinner, Hungry Man, that's when it, that was a that was more of a ritualistic passage into manhood than a bar mitzvah or communion because the hungry man dinners cost more. My mother, I remember she'd buy them because I was old enough now to have a hungry man TV dinner. Uh, Christina Ward, author of Holy Food. Are you enjoying this so far? I'm having a blast talking about food and religion with you, of all people. Um, I feel like you are the my ideal reader. Uh, I am, and the, and in fact, uh, there is a book uh, on uh, on cookbook advertising too, which completely fascinated me. And I think we tried to find a way to drop it in a couple of different ways. I don't know, but I I love I love this part of American culture because we go big. And then it just kind of goes away frequently. And we don't even like t- the whole idea of TV. People call them still TV dinners, but uh, or now maybe they just all call them lean cuisine. So maybe that's the catch all like a Pepsi or a Coke, whether whether or not it is or not. Um, all right. So I was curious when I was looking at I, I have this theory. I don't know what, where you are with this, that there's a lot of secret information passed along in food. Now, I noticed that you were talking about this with Islam. I know that um, there were uh, Jewish communities that had, you know, that were passing as Christian communities uh, because of the persecution. Um, But what are some of the examples that you find interesting about coded food? Um, there are like wonderfully so many because again it becomes um, an identifier, a tribal identifier. So you can recognize uh, who is part of your in group. And so when we think about um, especially foods, I'm try- right off the top of my head, I'm thinking right away of the of, of Mormon culture of, of oh. Latter Day Saints, right? You know, modern times and the rise of these flavor soda pops. Right. Companies, um, because again, uh, the Latter Day Saints are like the Seventh Day Adventists. Don't believe in consuming any kind of stimulant. Coca Cola, Pepsi, all of those would be considered a stimulant, and so it gave rise to um, having soda of really crazy flavors. And then businesses, like especially shops, where you can go in and make whatever kind of flavor soda you want, and that is their version of a coffee house. And that's a real coded. So if you're in, um, say, in Utah, in northern Arizona, where you have a large LDS community, that's a very coded thing of everybody getting that kind of soda. And if you're a Coca-Cola drinker, you're not going to find many Cokes around. No. You're only gonna, and so that becomes, a, a, you know, that, this way of communicating who is LDS, who isn't, by what they're drinking. Yeah, I, I was reminded, though, of so, like some of the early slave culture cuisine items from people that were attempting to maintain some kind of um, without making it look like they weren't assimilated without making it look like they were being rebellious, that they were maintaining some food cultures um, from their past, which now we kind of take for granted. I would think one of those would be like barbecue and things like that. 
Um, barbecuing, is, you know, and that is such a thorny food history kind of thing to talk about. <laughs> Good. Good. It's a real complicated, and, and that's actually something that I think everyone should think about in everything that they're eating. There's nuance. And there's complication because the history and the culture informs the food. The food informs the culture. The religion informs the food. The culture informs the religion. And so we are this beautiful, you know, stew of all of these influences. So with that being said, barbecuing is a cooking technique that makes really cheap cuts of meat um, flavorful and edible. And traditionally, that is a type of cooking style uh, from the era of enslavement, uh, that when people who were enslaved were given you know, only the scraps. And how do right. you make scraps delicious, long and slow, and lots of acidity and sugar and spicing, and then you can make that edible. So there's a number of groups that embrace that cuisine as soul food now. And soul food is very specific in it's got to have certain elements, and that those elements are, are they foods that are essentially made during that enslavement period? Now, of course, we, you know, macaroni and cheese gets added on in later years, but the, they come to represent an right. entire culture. Now, if you look at the nation of Islam, they have taken the completely opposite view and have rejected all of the foods that um, are associated with the enslavement period. And so they are not going to eat any kind of barbecue at all. And so this is where that nuance comes in. And then there's also current arguments of who gets to claim um, expertise in making barbecue. Um, do, do you have to come from that tradition? Can hmm. uh, in a northern guy claim to be a barbecue pitmaster expert? Some are, some do. And this is the beauty of being in America, because we take the food, and then we take the religion and the spirituality, and we take what we like, and then we kind of mix it up, and we make something new out of it. Yeah, it, it, it kind of reminds you a little bit of, uh, of the Japanese, um, the, the the sushi roll known as the California roll that has Philadelphia cream cheese in it. And <laughs> And, right. There's a bunch of these different roles that started in California, which are now so popular that they sell them in Japan. Some people resent that and they go, that's not really sushi or that's not really what we do. Don't eat that. And other people going, I don't care where it comes from. It tastes good. <laughs> and that's such an American idea, too, is that um, we we take everyone else, everyone's culture. And so these sometimes, and you'll see these in food communities, in the right. like food writing and, and chef culture of people talking about authenticity. Right. And it's my opinion that if you're in America, if you're an American, um, it is very difficult to claim anything authentic unless you're an indigenous cook cooking, you know, native indigenous right. foods. There is no authentic real American cuisine. American cuisine is created and invented from all the wonderful inputs from everybody else, including religion. But I think we, it's fair to say that American food is frequently a watered down version um, you know, it, it, it can be in many times because we we take um, things that are easier, convenient in many times. And also we change up the ingredients. If something uh, was made, say, back in Germany, I'm thinking of like Amana and what we think of as Amish and Mennonites. Those were all Protestant separatist groups that came over in the 1600s. And that food 
um, they didn't have the same ingredients when they were in Germany that they had in the United States. And so they adjusted their recipes to make it close to what they were eating in their originating country. But it was different because you're using different ingredients. And again, that that becomes all the way. I'm thinking also, if you look at, again, LDS, Mormon culture, with their, their idea, especially in 20th century, of missionaries. So they'd send the kids out, the missionaries, so all over the world, and the kids would bring home a recipe. And when you look at Mormon cookbooks in the 60s and 70s and 80s, you have these kind of oddball recipes, versions of a, a taco, of an empanada, that no one who is living right. in that originating region would recognize yeah. as a taco or an empanada. Right. Right, 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 right. Uh, that's one of the reasons why I used to love the Tamale Festival when I lived in Phoenix. I was getting my Ph.D. And it was like, it was so cool to go to the Tamale Festival. And you literally come home with like a bag of like 20 frozen. <laughs> they were so good. But I, so, but I think, you know, if I'm, if I'm wrong, correct me. But I mean, I thought the Amish began their migration here a long, long time ago. I mean, I think there was a, probably a big influx in the 1900s, but um, early 18th century escaping persecution, that was kind of their thing. Like, as you said, this is a lot of groups that were just like, they were skedaddling because they couldn't get uh, any peace where they were from. And then they kind of get frozen, right? I mean, mm-hmm. the Amish, they, they don't you're not going to see them going through Taco Bell. You're not going to see them, you know, on a horse or something like that going through. I don't McDonald's. know. I'm in Wisconsin. You've never seen kids on Rumspring, have you? Uh, Rumspring is different, though. We all know <laughs> Rumspring is like, you know, Amish for paws. You know, so that's, uh, yeah. But you you know what I'm saying on, on the day-to-day, which is also interesting because it becomes a little time capsule for food. It does because, and so we think about, you know, so you're right, the German pietists, the Swedish pietists, all those right. like kind of central northern European groups, they um, come to the United States, and it also serves uh, from the colonizing aspect. These are these groups are hardworking and they're carving out a community uh, in a frontier, and from the United States perspective, um, even you know 1700s, even when it was still an English colony, that is a great occupying force. It's a, a benevolent army, so to speak, that mm-hmm. are taking up space and keeping um, the the indigenous people subjected because they're keeping them out from their traditional methods. But it also goes, as you said, it's frozen in time. If anyone's ever visited a manna in Iowa, the manna colony was a really super restrictive yeah. religious, German religious Protestant colony. Um, and people may not recognize those beliefs today because it seems really quaint. Anybody who's gone to like Lancaster, Pennsylvania or central Ohio to visit some of the, the Amish shops, Mennonite shops, go to the Mennonite restaurants, buy those foods. They're seeing uh, essentially that snapshot back in time, but at the same time, very American because they monetized it. Right. Selling you potato chips and jam, even Smucker's. Smucker's jelly had its origination in some of the, the Mennonite communities in central Ohio. Uh, I didn't know that. And I've been to the Amish communities in central Ohio, and I found them to be very crabby. 
<laughs> it was very hard to have a conversation with them. They couldn't be couldn't be less interested. I could live or die. They they didn't give me they didn't give me a damn because you're an outsider because and I'm Auslander or whatever. Yeah, yeah, exactly. you're you're Englisher, um, and this is part of how the United States has fostered this idea of religious extremism in many ways. Again, we because of our right. First Amendment and because of our tax laws that allows religious organizations to earn an income. And right. for many groups, earning an income the best way was through a food business, whether that was a cookbook or canned goods or a restaurant. Um, these were great ways to monetize um, some of their food practices and act also as uh, an attractant for yeah. potential new converts. Uh, yeah, they're not converting anybody with that crabby attitude. So. <laughs> All right, well, so let me. Uh, if the food tastes good enough, they can if, be as happy as they want. Maybe. Um, so, okay. So, what about the Rosicrucians? Why yeah. does that pop up in the book? Well, the Rosicrucians um, in, in the United States, it's a little different than how it kind of those stories originated in Europe. In the right. United States, it's, they identify as Christian mystics, and it's kind of an amalgamated belief system that is influenced by theosophy, the I Am movement, positive thinking movement, as well as Christianity, as well as the idea of mystery schools and hidden knowledge. All of that gets cooked into it, along with sex magic. So right. the Rosicrucians in the United States, uh, following uh, Paschal Randolph, there was this idea that, again, sex and food, very two pleasurable things for humans, so they get mixed together quite often. This idea that you could access a higher level of spirituality through purification and then, of course, through sexual acts that are focused with intention. And part of the purification from the food part was vegetarianism. Um, in the United States, the Rosicrucians are purely vegetarian because they just did not believe, um, as many early Christian sects did not, that um, they, they shouldn't eat meat. It was against the Bible. Well, and yet, I mean, the the Bible is ambiguous on that in the sense of it saying, you know, you have dominion and then there's all sorts of, why why have food laws if you couldn't eat the if you couldn't eat the food, but I understand what they're saying, but it, 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 that's also pretty common, right? Because then you have, you get into the whole Kellogg thing. Um, sure. and, this, and it gets really funny in a, in many ways. And this is where, you know, I work really hard not to make fun of any of these groups, but oh, to really take it. a look at what they're believing. And that's a time when you're talking about the Rosicrucian time and that's the Seventh-day Adventists with Kellogg's, is this idea of food science is brand new. We've just identified what a vitamin is. These ideas about what food does for us, is we still don't quite know. Science is just really getting its legs at this point. And so these ideas of science get mixed into the religion, and especially with purity. Same with the Rosicrucians. So you must purify your carcass, the vessel, because it is God's temple. It's not, you don't own it, God does. And so right. you need to keep it pure. And the best way to do that is to eat a plant-based diet. And why do people believe that? It's a reaction towards the very heavy, meat-heavy, stodgy Victorian-era diet that, you know what, I'm just going to say it, made people really constipated. Right. <laughs> we have uh, kind of uh, ideas about people waste. 
And it goes to this idea of filiation. If we're not eliminating properly, that means we're impure. And so anything we can do to keep our bodies pure makes us closer to God, because cleanliness is next to godliness. Right. That was certainly Kellogg's idea. Was Absolutely. Right? Yeah, and, and very tied uh, into religious concepts. It was, and because it's also, when you talk about Kellogg's cornflakes and graham crackers, if you remember, the FDA also um, was not really pro-sex at all. They believed <laughs> very strongly that the sexual urge was not really holy. Um, it was meant just for procreation, and so don't enjoy it. And so the other thing you had to do is make sure that you weren't going to enjoy it and you weren't going to enjoy the food because, you know, you weren't really supposed to enjoy much of anything in the SDA early SDA lifestyle. Uh, and the, the uh, oddly enough, of course, Kellogg's has 20 varieties of everything now. So it's, if we follow that, I, I know it's no longer rooted in the same way that it was. I want to talk, I want to go back to this idea of hidden messages though in food. I'll give you a chance to get caught up on that. Um, because to me, that's fascinating. And I, I don't know much about it, but I know that something, there were coded dishes more than just like, you know, sugar and other stuff. We'll get back to that next time. Coast to Coast AM. This is Ian Punnett. Christina Ward is not just uh, an author of Holy Food. She's also a vice president and an editor at Barrel House, which is known for its uh, publication of Esoterica. Um, so, it's not just the food itself. Sometimes it's just the way it's packaged. As you point out, you know, a lot of what happens culturally in other nations ends up getting kind of tossed into this giant stew that we have here in the United States. And but yet some of it's also indigenous. Right? The, the reaffirmation of these majoritarian uh, concepts of race and and the. Um, the overemphasis in marketing on what we might consider to be like, you know, racial or ethnic stereotypes. Um, and that, you know, that never ceases to surprise me because some of them were gone by the time I was growing up. Uh, but a lot of them weren't not like Aunt Jemima <laughs> was still around until they got religion. But you know what I mean? Absolutely. Um, my previous book, American Advertising Cookbooks, um, spoke to that directly. This idea of white culture, um, again, we're talking about really late 1900s or, you know, late 1800s, early 1900s. And this idea of using these racial tropes to sell food. You can look at advertising, and again, if you're old enough, you might remember uh, Kool-Aid flavors that were highly racist. Um, right. There was, you know, Chinese cherry. There was Injun, and that had all these representational kind of stereotypical cartoons that helped sell the brand. It was actually one of the um, ideas is that – as the civil rights movement uh, grew in the United States in the 60s, is that groups started um, advocating for themselves to say, wait a second, this is not who we are, and we don't want you selling food to white people by using us as your joke. And it did take a long time for an Aunt Jemima to finally get a makeover, so to speak, and to remove that. These, we, we tend to, especially with our food and culture, we lean back on the tradition and claim that tradition is culture without always thinking about what that means to someone else. 
Uh, I could be wrong on that, but I thought it was, um, in my memory anyway, it was uh, Funny Face was the name of the brand, um, uh, the drink mix brand. It was yeah, made by Kool-Aid, but they kind of had, they sort of done the spinoff, right, where they were they were doing its own thing. And Funny Face was, put that that in itself, you know, where it was Chinese cherry or Injun orange or whatever, I can't remember, there were other ones. Um, and it was all about the the. It was built on the caricature. On top of that, it wasn't just the name. They made them into funny faces, and it's like that was so hideous. But I, I do think it. I do think it plays the trail eventually for the village people. I could be wrong. <laughs> Uh, um, I have not made that connection. That there, that's something worth someone researching. Yeah, yeah I don't think so. Uh, all right. So anyway, thank you. That, uh, but that's, but that wasn't just it. So that now you have like, uh, you know, Uncle Ben's converted rice, and everything seems, even if it had, you know, of some, some black. Uh, waiter in the grand southern tradition with a starch white shirt or whatever serving um, it was still about it was still a coded message about food and and so it, it gave people some odd comfort like the cream of wheat kid like what is that what does a black kid on a cover of a box of cream of wheat have to do with anything well, I, I, there's actually some uh, a lot of research on how that early advertising worked with food, and that was also the rise of um, kind of industrialization of food, and that changing workplace, uh, changing over where the rise of the middle class, and so this idea that if you were a stay-at-home mom, which most women were, if we're thinking of the 1920s and 30s right. into the 40s, and maybe you were just starting out. And you couldn't afford to hire a maid, but you could buy this convenience food um, in Uncle Ben's, you know, the Aunt Jemima, and you didn't have to make it from scratch. And so it was like having hired help in your home. Oh, that's interesting. That was the coded message. I never and made that comment. That's why you saw these caricatures of black people on these food brands. Uh, that, that will rival the Little Debbie revelation. Um, yeah, and that's part of the power of advertising in general. It works on both, you know, a subliminal level and then a straightforward level um, in, on your brain. And it has um, these ideas baked into it. I can't resist the food pun. Uh-huh. That, um, help sell the product, but also help sell someone's identity. Who right. do they think they are? Who do they want to be? Very aspirational. Um, and so when you see some of the, um, that you get into celebrities endorsing foods, especially in the 50s, the, the birth of television, um, like you're talking about TV dinners, that idea that, oh, my favorite celebrity is eating that TV dinner. Right. I think I'm going to do that too because I want to be like them. Yeah. Uh, uh, so... That's just the packaging of it. There were also dishes that seemed to me to be in this beyond barbecue that that may have come out of the fact that it was considered like poor food. Like you were in order in order to be poor, you had to eat that. That became mainstream culturalized. Um, and then you get like really, I think, are 
I mean, you come from Wisconsin, so you know. I mean, you know what I mean by head cheese and other stuff. And it's just a matter of like, well, we got to use up every little thing we have, and had nothing to do with, particularly with, um, a coded message about race or anything like that. But it certainly did about status. I mean, you didn't eat head cheese unless you had to. Well, you know, and what's interesting about that, yes, and every culture, head cheese, scrapple, getta, for all my Cincinnati fans, right, right. friends? Yeah. Um, those are all just use-it-all-up kind of dishes. And what we've seen is where it's moved from poor people's food to now it's been, quote-unquote, elevated by chefs who are serving awful, and that means, you know, guts and right. the stuff we normally, if we're middle class now, we're not going to eat kidneys and liver as much anymore. But now chefs are trying to, like, reclaim it and elevate it and make it into something gourmet. And that's a cycle that we see in this coded food, as well as the religious food. And I'm thinking, too, if we, um, from the period of enslavement, the idea of black-eyed peas, and right. what if they represent something to people? So even people who are long away from poverty in black culture in America, on New Year's Day, um, you're going to eat Hop and John. You're going to eat right. black-eyed peas because it represents um, money. And, right. you know, because it's and success, right, and success. And so right. it's it's essentially it is it religious, not really, but it's kind of a, a superstitious spiritual tradition, cultural belief that gets put into the food. Well, cultural religion is really half of what we're talking about, though, too. So, I mean, obviously, there's nothing in in the Quran about a lot of practices that are maintained today, but they were they've become part of the culture and so even people who no longer practice Islam practice cultural Islam or cultural Judaism, where they they identify as as Jews. But, you know, really, other than the high holidays, they don't really pay any attention to it or the occasional yeah, and, Shabbos or something. And that's, the, again, the beauty of America, because we don't live in a theocracy. Right. Ideally, um, that we have that freedom of religion, which means freedom from religion as well. And so people can take and retain their, their good cultural memories of a religious food, a religious practice, and, you know, think about that in that cultural sense and separate it from the religiosity, which is what happened to, in, you know, the early 1900s, more so in the 60s, when we talk about cults and communes, is when the East Indian, the gurus from the Hindu traditions start coming to the United States with a very good intention to share their religious practice and their belief, thinking that Americans could use that. Um, it gets severed from the spiritual aspect of it. And what we're left with is yoga. Interesting. That that's what, uh, because I, my son is, uh, my youngest son is, in the process of becoming an aspirant in the in the Buddhist tradition, particularly mm -hmm. the Vietnamese Buddhist tradition in America, and he main, he's been a vegetarian for a long time, uh, really good shape, everything's great, uh, and then every so once in a while we'll go somewhere and he's and he eats meat, and I, the first time I saw it I thought well he's just still transitioning, and then later I asked him I said okay. There were 20 other things there that you could have eaten. Why that? And he said, because it was offered. And our tradition is that we are beggars. At, at, at our soul, we are beggars. And if this is what's being offered, 
then it would be an insult to not eat it. Um, and I thought, okay, well, fair's fair, but that sort of surprised me that 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 there's sort of that big giant loophole, <laughs> you know, well, when it comes it, to. It's not every Buddhist sect, and that's something that I think that as Americans we don't have um, the religious history education that maybe no. we should, or even our American history education is just as there's uh, so many flavors of Protestant Christianity. There are that many flavors of Buddhism and Hinduism right. and Islam, each group having a, a sect that broke off after a schism and did it differently. So within Buddhist traditions, especially in the United States, uh, depending on which school you're following, some are meat eaters, some are not. And right. some follow the very, like your son, a, a very draconian style, and only for monks, that's not everyday Buddhist, but people right. who are aspiring to monks is... There is that tradition of you can only eat what you are given. And you had to go, and you know, thousands of years ago, you had to beg for your food. And you had to eat whatever was given to you. And it became a very, you know, kind of off-color joke even a couple thousand years ago. People would give these monks terrible foods, poisoned foods, and just watch them get very, very ill. Uh, so, you know, oh. human nature works both ways. But, yeah, that— I'll have to warn him. <laughs> yeah, so tell, tell him to watch where he's begging for food. Right. Um, but there's also—I I laughed when you said he had a hamburger because there is a an old joke from leftover from commune in kind of 1970s days, especially for the vegetarian communes, is if someone would go off commune, they'd often go somewhere to a diner and get the unholy cheeseburger. Because right. we're still Americans, and there was nothing like the allure of a cheeseburger. And after right. so many kind of gluten loaf and tofu's, um, there nothing hits a spot like a cheeseburger. Yeah, yeah, that's very interesting. So I, I love what you're doing and what you're researching. This is, but this isn't just. I mean, some people might look at it like, oh, that sounds really scholarly. It's just accurate, and you go into great detail, and that's what I love about it. That you know, it's it's highly footnoted. It's not just uh, uh, it it isn't just something that you collected off the internet, which too often is the case when it comes to something oh, like no. this. No, so this I interviewed people who were in groups, part of groups, um, survivors of groups, um, and so many books, so many re so much research. It took me five years of active like working on this. You know, and again, like. Most working class people still working my job. Right. Um, but this idea, I wanted this book to be for, for you, for listeners, for general readers, for people who were interested or maybe think they're interested, but weren't really interested in reading all that academic stuff or right. getting lost in that very rigid academic language. Yeah, uh, which is why it makes a great gift book, and especially for the foodie in your life or the holy foodie in your life. Um, it, 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 some people get really touchy about it, which is interesting. They get really uh, – they, they make this sort of uh, – you, you insult my food, you insult me. And right. to me, growing up, I grew up in uh, just uh, north of uh, Chicago, and – I, I, I have no ethnicity, right? I have none. My mother was from the South. My father was from the North. Um, but even there, other than some Southern dishes, there was nothing I got from my father. Uh, there was nothing particular, even though he was a 
born and bred Yankee. I mean, he would he would do weird things like put ketchup on rice and stuff like that. But I think that had more to do with the Navy than anything else. And uh, and but so when I would go over to a friend's house and they were gathering for a meal, it was just another world, you know, especially like a, a friends who were, came from like a, a Italian heritage. They were like, you know, they were using the bread to eat the sauce and other stuff that would have gotten me thrown off the table if I'd done that in my house. And 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 all of these things had to be done in a particular order and whatever. And I think, it, you know, the eth- most ethnic food I have is Thanksgiving. You know, that's like I, the, the only the only time when that sort of like that cuisine was sort of spoken about is that's our food or whatever. But that was it. And so I, I'm reading this book and I'm just like, huh, <laughs> you know, and it sort of explains uh, the background behind a lot of these practices, which I'm not even sure why my, if my friends know all of what goes in. And then you mentioned the communes. Is there another good example you can of, of an impact of a, of a commune on our, on our diet? Um, absolutely. Let me talk about, I'll, I'll bring up the farm. The farm commune, because it's actually it's a secular ish ish commune right. um, started by Stephen Gaskin in San Francisco, you know, late 60s, early 70s. And it was a great example of what's called a drug church. They started by seeking God and seeking that personal connection with God. And that thought of the time, kind of following Timothy Leary, was if you take enough drugs, you will either see God or become God. Right. Um, we know how that works out. It doesn't. Right. But the group itself, they moved from the San Francisco area to Middle Tennessee, a very rural area, and started the commune. At its peak, they had a couple thousand people, but in that they were strict vegetarians, and it took them a while to figure out how to get enough protein, how not to get hepatitis, how not to you know, get very ill. And in that tenacious figuring it out, they have created some food brands that we would recognize today. So if you ever eat tofurkey, you can thank the farm commune for that. And that's where these groups really excelled when they were together, when they had it together and they weren't really, you know, bad actors. um, They could move that food culture forward because they were super motivated by their beliefs to get it right and to get that food right for their believers. Uh, that is interesting at a time when impossible uh, meat, you know, being sold by Burger King in a in an impossible Whopper or um, in I just saw an advertisement the other day for some product that's, you know, it's plant based, but it's supposed to be really delicious and tastes like I can't remember what it was, salami or something. And and I think, well, that we have to make, if you're going to make a food like that, you have to make it familiar. You have to put it, you have to package it. You have to, you have to use a name. You have to do all these things. Otherwise we we don't really need new foods. Maybe that's, we just have plenty of foods already. So there's nothing particularly sparkling about. That's the American way, though, because they figure out a way to monetize it. I'm thinking there's some great foods that you're going to find in the grocery stores that have roots in 
both these cults and the communes. And we'll go back to the Seventh-day Adventists. Anybody who's eating um, Morningstar brand fake meats really that was born that they, they they did sell the company about 10 years ago ish um but that was started by the seventh-day adventist the worthington brand of fake meat is still owned by the seventh-day adventist so is the loma linda brand now here's the one that tends to blow people's minds is kettle potato chips okay hang on to that because that's a bigger conversation, and we'll roll the numbers here, too, so you can join the conversation with Christina Ward. Holy food! Next on Coast to Coast AM, this is Ian Punnett.